I want to welcome you to the first of uh, three outdoor gatherings that we plan to have this summer. In case you missed the announcement, the plan is to gather outdoors the final Sunday of July, August, and September, and to follow each of those gatherings with a picnic. And uh, I thought I would begin um, just by explaining the why behind this, because uh, this is about a lot more than just kind of getting outside of our routine and maybe getting a tan while we're at it, as great as that would be. Um, Let me go ahead and tell you something that uh, I'm sure you already know. This past calendar year has changed a whole lot for a whole lot of people. And local churches have not been immune to that. I I don't know, um, you know, if you kind of had your hand to the pulse uh, regarding the church specifically in this country or not, but I remember that in the middle of, of, uh, you know, the the shutdowns and and the quarantines and all that kind of stuff, that uh, at at one point, church leaders were speculating that as many as one-third of the local churches in this country alone were going to shut their doors entirely. And I don't know exactly, uh, you know, what happened, but for the churches that, that have actually survived this thing and come, come through this thing, like by God's grace we have, um, what churches have generally found now, the churches that have gotten through this, is that uh, one-third of their people have come back uh, to worship in person. About one-third of their people have chosen to remain online, and they don't know where a third of their people have gone. And added to that is, is the fact that um, over the last year in the middle of COVID, there's been this kind of great shuffling where a lot of people have, have moved from one church to the other. And so I say all that to say that this last calendar year has probably seen the most profound change to the DNA of local churches uh, that we may very well live to see in, in our lifetimes. And so with that, um, there's, a, there's a real need Uh, not just for the church generally, but for our church, and I think every local church specifically, given how much change there's been, there's this real need um, for us to get reacquainted with ourselves and to almost, you know, reconnect with ourselves and and in so many ways to reestablish ourselves as a community. And and that is a huge part of what these services are about. It's about getting to know kind of who we even are, you know, as the dust settles on, on what we've all been through and, and, and continues to settle with what we're still going through over the events of the last year. And so as I was thinking through these services and the, um, the teachings that I was planning to give at them specifically, the first thought that came to my mind was obviously I wanted to talk about uh, community. And I wanted to talk about the importance of community. And so my plan uh, across these three services is just take each service and talk about one specific uh, reason that we need community. And as I was uh, rolling this idea around in my mind, a friend of mine um, kind of pushed back on me a little bit and, and challenged me and told me um, that probably everybody that shows up to these services or listens to these teachings already knows that. And I think he was right. I think for, for pretty much everybody here today, specifically if you've been in the church for any length of time, you have probably heard more messages than you can remember about the importance of community and the importance of relationships and your spiritual formation and why we need that. And so instead of talking about why we need community, I want to talk about something that, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know that I've ever dedicated a teaching to in about eight and a half years of preaching. 
Um, instead of talking about why we need community, I want to talk about the kind of community that we need to become. Um, because Jesus has been very clear in his word that uh, there is a calling that he's placed on the communities of people that call themselves the church. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain distinctiveness to us. Uh, there's a certain look and a certain feel and certain characteristics that he desires his followers to be marked by. And so more than just talking about, you know, or, or even figuring out who we are, these services are, are really designed to provide direction about who we're going to become. And so the question that I want to ask today, and we're going to ask it at all three of our outdoor services, is what kind of community are we called to become? And today we're going to look at the first answer to that question it's a community of holiness, which I know sounds riveting. So we're going to be in John chapter 17. I'm going to read to you verses 14 through 19. Jesus said, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. This is God's word. <clears throat> The passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, some of Jesus' final words to his uh, disciples before he went to the cross, this is probably the premier passage in Scripture for uh, demonstrating and, and really walking through Jesus' desire that his followers would be a community marked by holiness. And so I want to talk about holiness today. I want to talk about it in four ways. First off, uh, what it means. Secondly, how easy it is to get it wrong. Thirdly, what it takes to get it right. And fourthly, what it looks like when we do get it right. And so the first question that we have to answer when talking about, you know, what it means to be a community of holiness is first off what holiness actually is, what it actually means, and there's a great answer to that in this passage here. First and foremost, and, and this probably doesn't surprise you, the idea of holiness means to be distinct. You see this in verse 14 where Jesus says, the world hated them because they are not of the world, which is a phrase that Jesus repeats in verse 16, so clearly Jesus is, is, is talking here about a community that's distinct. It's a community that, that's, that's different, and that's a huge part of what holiness means. It's just not all that holiness means. And we know that because Jesus completes this idea with what he says in verses 15 and 18, where Jesus says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you, that you protect them from the evil one. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So clearly when Jesus is talking about holiness, he's not talking about becoming so different that you become detached. What Jesus is getting at here is a community that he's sending into the world, that he's calling to engage with the world while remaining distinct from the world. If you've ever heard the phrase, you know, in the world and not of it, that's a phrase, uh-oh, we good? Oh, uh, here we go. Good? Anything? <laughs> one second. One second, one second. 
Test, test. Hey, all right. The old turn it off, turn it on again. Fixes literally everything. Um, as I was saying, um, Jesus isn't talking about becoming so, so different that you become uh, detached. He's talking about a community that he's sending into the world uh, that is called to remain distinct from that world. It's about being in and not of. Now, if you, as I said on, on the, uh, the front end of this, if you have been in the church for any length of time, this is not a new idea to you. I just want to encourage you to think maybe a little bit more deeply about this than you ever have before. Because if you start thinking about holiness uh, for any length of time, you realize that, that what, the, what these words mean is that being a follower of Jesus requires you to embrace a certain tension in your life that is incredibly easy to get wrong and incredibly difficult to get right. Because if all Jesus had said is, don't be like the world, uh, that's remarkably easy. There, there are any number of ways we could decide to just be different from the rest of the world, and we could get really weird doing that, which, let's be honest, a whole lot of communities in the name of God have become really weird groups of people. And on the other hand, if all Jesus said was, I'm not praying that God would take you out of the world. As a matter of fact, I'm sending you into that world. You take that out of context, that's a really easy thing to walk in. I mean, by default, we can assimilate and become exactly like the culture that, that we're a part of. What Jesus is talking about here, what holiness is, it's, it's holding together this tension of being sent into a world that you're called to remain distinct from. Now, there's two main ways that, that individual Christians and the communities of believers known as local churches, there's two main ways that we can get this wrong and historically do get it wrong. On one end of the spectrum, you have something called syncretism. On the other end of the spectrum is what you could call irrelevance. All right, syncretism is a word that literally means uh, the blending together of different compounds or different elements or different things to the point that you can no longer discern the difference between them. Uh, syncretism happens when a church overemphasizes its calling to be in the world while underemphasizing its calling to not be of it. These are the churches that kind of shy away from the authority of Scripture and the exclusive truth claims found therein. Maybe we stop talking about Jesus as the only way to make us right before God. We stop talking about the need for repentance and all those kinds of things. That's syncretism. On the other end of the spectrum is relevance. Irrelevance is the product of a church that overemphasizes its calling to not be of the world while underemphasizing its calling to be in it. And this is usually the product of a, of a, a community of Jesus followers that has become so uh, exclusively inwardly focused that the Great Commission has gone from go into the world and make disciples to go into the church and make Christians happy. And we elevate our preferences to the point that we moralize them and put them on par with God's word. And all of our efforts and all of our energies are spent on just trying to sort of keep the past alive and make us happy and make us comfortable. And then we wake up in, in two, three, four decades and realize we don't even know the community that, that God has called us to reach, let alone what questions they're asking or what thoughts they have or how to communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. And there's a chance that as you listen to that, that one of these sounds worse to you. Either syncretism or irrelevance sounds worse. And the truth is they're both equally bad because they're both equally disobedient to the calling that Jesus has placed on the lives of people who claim to be his followers. And so the high calling of God's people for the last 2,000 years is to hold this tension of persistently engaging with the culture that you've been sent into 
while faithfully remaining distinct from that culture. It is incredibly easy to get wrong and incredibly difficult to get right. And so it raises the question, of course, how do we get this right and what does it take to get this right? And Jesus gives us two very clear answers to that question in the verses that we're looking at today. What holiness requires, according to Jesus' words here, is first a devotion to God's word, and secondly, a devotion to God's message. And what I'd like to do for the remaining time that we have is walk through those two ideas as quickly but as clearly as I can. So first and foremost, if you're taking notes, this is our first main idea. It's that holiness requires devotion to God's word. And what I'd like to point out for you is how much Jesus weaves the idea of the word of God into this passage. In verse 14, the very first thing he says is, I have given them your word. Verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. And then in verse 19, he says, I sanctify myself for them so they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, when I was studying this passage this week, the thing that stood out to me about Jesus' prayer here, because that's what this is, this is Jesus praying over his people. What stood out to me is that Jesus is not simply praying that his people would be sanctified. He's praying that the thing that would sanctify us is the word of God. Now, that word sanctify simply means to be set apart for a specific purpose. And Jesus, again, is not simply praying that we'd be sanctified, but that we would specifically be sanctified by the word of God. The reason that Jesus prayed in this way, the reason that he prayed this specifically over his people is because everyone on this planet is already being sanctified by something. What I mean by that is you and I are already actively being sanctified, being set apart by something in our lives. We're being uh, instructed by something. We're being developed and molded by something. What it boils down to, we're already being discipled by something. And as much as every one of us likes to think that we're a free thinker, that we're objective, that we can see through, you know, the propaganda, we can see the big picture while everybody else is just kind of a sheep that lets everybody else do their thinking for them, the truth is we are highly relational creatures We are highly communal creatures that in ways largely unknown even to us are the products of the things going on around us, either physically or digitally. And so what Jesus is praying here is not just that we would be sanctified. He's saying the distinguishing mark of his people first and foremost is that the thing that sanctifies us would be the word of God, that the primary tool that shapes the way that we think and the way that we live is the truth of God's word. Now, for the third time, I'm going to point out, I know that you've heard this before. I know that that's not a groundbreaking idea. But of all, of all the implications I could draw, of all the places I could go from this idea, given the cultural moment that you and I find ourselves in, <clears throat> it's my conviction, and there's a good chance that this could step on some toes, but it's my conviction that the most important implication of this idea for us to understand right now is this. That as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should not feel at home in any of the cultural ideologies, man-made philosophies, or political parties of this world. Let me say that one more time because I can sense that somebody's already generating an angry email for me. So I want to make, I want to, I want to be real clear about what I mean and what I don't mean. I'm not saying that we can't find things we agree with 
in the camps and parties and ideologies of this world. I'm not saying that there's not going to be overlap between them and the truth of God's word. What I'm saying is that as a follower of Jesus, none of us should be able to feel at home in the cultural ideologies, man-made philosophies, or political parties of this world. And that is just logical. Because if God's word does not come from this world, if God's word actually transcends this world, which it does, then it will create a way of life that cannot fit neatly into any of the categories of this world, which it does. And therefore, if you and I are allowing ourselves to be sanctified first and foremost by the truth of God's word, then we should not be able to find a home in any of the categories or the camps of this world. Now, that's kind of an up-in-the-air idea, so let me, let, me bring that, let me bring that down to us. One of the things that Jesus consistently did all through his time here, Jesus, the Scripture reminds us, is the Word of God made flesh, is Jesus consistently demonstrated what you could call a third way of living. The way of Jesus was not religious like the Pharisees, but neither was the way of Jesus irreligious like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Jesus' way was not simple moralism, but it certainly was not immoralism. And in fact, you could actually say, although this is going to surprise some people, that Jesus' way was not conservative, neither was it liberal. Jesus, all through his life, consistently challenged both groups of people on either side of him, both to the left and to the right, by presenting a way of life that was not just a mixture of the two methodologies, like he's some kind of divine centrist. Jesus presented a way of life that transcended and therefore challenged both groups of people. Now, there's all kinds of places you can look to in the gospel accounts to demonstrate this, but one of the most famous ones is this story that you've, you're probably familiar with. It's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. It's found in John chapter 8. In, in, uh, in John 8, we read that a woman who was physically caught in the act of adultery was brought by the Pharisees into the presence of Jesus, and they're surrounded by a group of people who were ready to kill her. Now, Pharisees, being experts in the law, knew that the Mosaic law called for the life of this woman. Her life was now forfeit. And Scripture says that the Pharisees, the highly religious, highly moral, you know, conservative types of Jesus' day, brought this woman before Jesus, Scripture explicitly says, in order to trap him. What they, what they actually wanted to do was literally put Jesus into a box. They're trying to nail him down. They're trying to figure out what kind of category that they can put him in so that they can discredit him. And really, the question that Jesus is presented with in John 8, this is a question he's often presented with all through the gospel accounts, is, it, it's, it's, just, it's as simple as this. Is Jesus a man of grace, or is he a man of truth? Is Jesus a man of the people, or is he a man of the law? And, and, and Jesus' response to that situation, this is my point, Jesus' response to that situation defied all known categories in his own day, and it, it defies all known categories that exist even in our day. The very first thing Jesus did in John chapter 8 is challenge the, the religious, the moral, the conservative types of his day by refusing to condemn the woman who was caught in adultery. He said to her, neither do I condemn you. And if you take that out of context, what that makes it look like is that Jesus is somebody who just doesn't really have that high a view of the law. You know, Jesus doesn't really make a big deal of sin. He kind of just wants everybody to be comfortable. Maybe he's sort of a moral relativist. But the very next words out of Jesus' mouth were, now go and sin no more. And with that phrase, Jesus also challenged 
the irreligious, morally lax, more liberal people in the crowd that day. And so what you're seeing in John chapter 8, you see this all through the life of Jesus, is a response that perfectly embodied what it meant to be absolutely full of grace and absolutely full of truth at the same time. Not half and half, but the full measure of each. The point is, Jesus did not fit into any of the categories in his day. He does not fit into any of the categories of our day. And a huge part of being his follower means accepting the fact that neither will you. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you find this as interesting as I do, but when Christianity first got off the ground and the church was born in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, before they started calling us Christians, people simply called Christianity the way because they had no idea what else to call it. They didn't know what to think of when they saw Christianity, when they saw how it interacted with, with people in society, both between Judaism and paganism. They didn't know what to do with this message called the gospel. They didn't know what to do with the community that it formed. All they knew when they looked at Christianity was, was that this was a brand new, unique, category-defying, all-encompassing way of life. Because you think about Christianity in the Roman Empire, you couldn't put Christianity next to religion or paganism. You couldn't put it next to religion because Christianity at its core was a belief system built on grace. This was a belief system that taught that there was absolutely no work you could do to make yourself right with God. And so God actually entered into our reality in order to do the work that we could never do for us. And now salvation is freely offered to us as a gift of grace. No religion in the history of mankind has ever taught anything like that. So they knew this was not just another religion they were dealing with. And yet, they couldn't put Christianity beside paganism because it was also a belief system that was built on the foundation of truth. This was a belief system centered around a man who dared to say something that no founder of any other religious system has ever dared to say in the history of mankind. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That is far too narrow, far too exclusive of a truth claim to be held up alongside you know, universalism or, or, or paganism or whatever you want to call it. My point is that when people first saw Christianity, they saw something that they'd never seen before. They saw something that they knew was different. And, and now let me offer this to you as my opinion. I don't, have a, I don't have a Bible verse to back this up. This is my opinion. But when I, <clears throat> when I think about the last year, when I think about, you know, the emails that I've received and the DMs and the text messages and the phone calls, and, and I look at, at, at the Christian response to all of the really complex issues we've been asked to respond to over the past year, none of them having really easy answers. When I look at, at how Christians have responded to the events we've been faced with over the last year, it, it's my conviction that, that one of, if not the biggest issues in the church today is that you, you have so many people claiming to be Christians who are called to be different that just totally fit in. They totally fit into to a camp or a category or, or a man-made philosophy or a political party or a cultural ideology of this world. And they find their identity in that before they find their identity in, in Christ. And what Jesus would say about that is that, that what's happened is we've allowed ourselves to be sanctified by something first rather than God's word. And you see this all the time. You, you see Christians who, it, it's, they would maybe never say this out loud, but functionally, they identify first and foremost with the political party and then their relationship with Jesus. They identify first and foremost with a 
you know, a, a, a societal cause and then their relationship with Jesus. First and foremost with an organization and then their relationship with Jesus. First and foremost by their stance on something that culture has asked us to take a stance on and then their relationship with Jesus. And what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 17, what Jesus was praying about for us in John chapter 17 is the total reversal of that. That we may have a lot of opinions about the things that we're faced with in this world, but first and foremost, our thinking and our living would be sanctified by the word of God. And what, what, I, what I truly believe a watching world is waiting for the church to remember today is that the Savior that we serve did not fit neatly into any of the categories of this world. If Jesus was, a, if Jesus was walking around Severn, Maryland today, we are wise to remember that it would not be very long before he did or said something that had you and I scratching our heads because he just doesn't fit into the categories that we try to put him into. And following him means that neither will you and, and neither will I. So first and foremost, holiness requires a devotion to God's word. Secondly, and this is going to be our last idea today, and I'm not going to take nearly as much time on this one. Holiness requires a devotion to God's mission. <clears throat> Jesus says in verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this because this is, we're going to dedicate an entire message to j just this idea at our, our third and final outdoor service. But I will say this. Years ago, I, probably 15 years ago, I watched a movie about, um, about rescue swimmers in the Coast Guard. And the movie uh, walked you through some of the training that they had to go through. Apparently, it's, it's a training that's so difficult that more often than not, there is no graduation because nobody can pass it. <clears throat> and in one part of the movie, they, they, uh, they showed the instructors teaching the rescue swimmers uh, how to approach and rescue a victim that had already fallen into the water. And the instructors actually posed as the victims in this scenario. And so when the student would swim up to the instructor in the pool in order to attempt to rescue them, the instructor would begin acting hysterical and would kind of, you know, try to rip off your face mask and, you know, get your snorkel away from you and all that kind of stuff. And the reason for that is because that's how people who have fallen into the water frequently act. You know, when, you, when, when, when a human being goes into that fight-or-flight survival mode, you lose the ability to think and act rationally. And actually, ironically but sadly, it's often the case that rescue swimmers are actually drowned by the people that they attempted to rescue. And when the drill was over, and it went really poorly, it was kind of a disaster. When the drill was over, the lead instructor addressed the class, and he said something. I probably heard this 15 years ago, and it, it, it just made an impact on me. Uh, he, he addressed the class. You could have heard a pin drop, and this is exactly what he said. He said, the primary difference between you and the people you're rescuing is the attitude in which you enter the water. The primary difference between you and the people you're rescuing is the attitude in which you enter the water. And that is essentially exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse 18. But what Jesus is getting at here is that one of the primary differences between one of his followers and the rest of the world is the attitude in which you walk through this life. And what Jesus' prayer here over you and I and everyone who claims to be his followers, what this is, is that it, it's a reminder and it's a challenge that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, this calls you to remember that wherever you find yourself in this life, that's not just where you happen to be, that's where you've been sent. And whoever you happen to find yourself interacting with or surrounded by, those are not just people that you're around. Those are people that you have actually been sent to. And Jesus goes even a step further than that and says that he sent you exactly the way that God the Father sent him. That means 
that the primary purpose of your life from the moment that you come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, your entire existence should be about seeking to do for someone else what God through Christ has done for you. Now, you zoom out from just these two ideas, this idea of devotion to God's word and devotion to God's mission, you realize that what Jesus is calling his followers to here is not a part-time job. This is an all-encompassing way of life. It's about an inward sanctification and an outward sending. This is about giving up the one life that you have in its entirety for the sake of the Savior that gave his life up for you. There is no greater ask than this. But the final question it left me asking is what would it look like if a group of Jesus followers actually took this seriously? And I'd like to conclude our time today by reading you a letter that answers that question. It's called The Letter to Diognetus. Um, it, it was written in either the 2nd or the 3rd century A.D. <clears throat> we don't know who wrote it, but we do know that it was written to a man uh, named Diognetus who himself was not a believer. But he saw the way that Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire like wildfire, despite how much it was costing individual Christians to dedicate their lives to Jesus. And he wanted to know what made this community so unique. And so this letter is an amazing resource for looking into the lives of the first followers of Jesus. Let me read this to you. It says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. In other words, on the surface, they look like everybody else. Here's the next thing he said. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they're citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they're not understood, they're put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They're totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They're defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as they're receiving the gift of life. <clears throat> I just want to close with this. A couple months back, we did a series called The Kingdom. The final week of that series, just before we had Easter Sunday, uh, I taught the parable of the great banquet. And if you were here, you might remember uh, I was talking about something that um, really meaningful to me. It was something that I feel like God put on my heart back in 2018. Um, and I shared with you then that I really do believe that God laid it on my heart that if we were ever to rename our church, that we would be called the table. Because when you look at, at Scripture as a whole, God's work in both Old and New Testament revolved around a table. 
Uh, in the Old Testament, every year, God's people were called to celebrate Passover, their physical deliverance from slavery in Egypt, by gathering around a table and celebrating Passover. In the New Testament, Jesus' entire ministry model revolved around a table. Uh, one theologian uh, commenting on Luke's gospel account specifically said that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either sitting at, going to, or walking away from a table. And so it's no surprise that the night before the crucifixion, when he was explaining to his disciples what was getting ready to happen, he did so around a table. Luke also tells us that on resurrection morning, it was, it was while reclining at table with Jesus that the disciples' eyes were finally opened and they realized that the man that they were looking at was the risen Son of God himself. Paul tells us in the New Testament letters that we're to gather, and as often as we do, to remember uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means. It's something that's called the Lord's table. And in the final book of the Bible, Revelation, we're told to put our hope and set our sights on this end of history event in which we'll be united with God and each other uh, at something called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we'll be gathered around a table at a celebration that's never going to end. And so it makes perfect sense to me that when, when long before church buildings existed, because they didn't exist for about the first 350 years of Christendom, that long before church buildings were a thing, Christians instinctively would gather around a table on Sundays, Resurrection Sundays, and they would celebrate what Jesus did for them. And they would always leave a seat open for somebody who didn't yet believe. It was one of the hallmarks that carved them out from the rest of the world. But I've been asking myself specifically the last couple of months, what, what would the table be like? What would set it apart? What would, what would make that community different from all the other communities, all the other churches even? And, and really, this teaching is an answer to that question. It would be a community of people who were devoted to God's word. It would be a community of people who were devoted to God's mission, a community of holiness. That's exactly what the world needs God's people to be, and more importantly, it's what Jesus Christ has called us to be. So I'll just leave you with this. Let's become that community by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to gather. I want to thank you for the purpose that you've given us, for the calling that you've given us, for the identity that you've given us, for the forgiveness, for the grace, for the mercy, for the truth, for everything that you've given us, for the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead alive and well in us. God, you have called us to be a community that is unlike anything the world has ever seen, and there is absolutely no way we can do that in our own efforts. So, Father, my, my request is that you would do that for us through the power of your spirit, through the power of your gospel, would you create uh, in and among us a community of holiness, a community that faithfully engages with this world while faithfully remaining different from it, a community that could show this world a hope that comes from outside of it, a love that comes from outside of it, a peace that's available to us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. God, please bless this time together. As we gather around these tables and we break bread and we reconnect, let it be a time of reconnection where people who have become disconnected from your people could get reconnected again so that we could be the community that you've called us to be. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. All right, stick around, get something to eat.